This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Now we turn to your money. There have been two increases in Canadian interest rates this year, and there is speculation that another increase could come as soon as the end of October. So what does it mean for Zoomers? It can be bad news if you still carry a mortgage or other debt, as an increasing number of older people do. But it can also be welcome if you're trying to live on your savings in retirement. So we are going to get advice from the expert, Alan Small, Senior Investment Advisor with Alan Small Financial Group with Hollisworth. I'm going to give the numbers out before we start our conversation because he is here to answer your questions about how to make that nest egg go as far as possible. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Alan, welcome. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So what is your take? Well, I think the you know the, the Bank of Canada looks to be uh, well really have changed their ways. You know, I think the trend for for the longest time was lowering of interest rates or at least keeping them somewhat uh, relatively stable. Now, it looks like the Bank of Canada has now uh, started this uh, this whole uh, notion about raising rates. We look to be raising rates in the coming months, in the coming years. So, what once was a trend for lower rates, a longer for a lower for longer, is now changed. And I think investors. And those, as you mentioned, that are carrying debt need to, to take notice of this because interest rates will be rising, I believe, in the in the not-so-distant future. We've already seen two increases. We may see a third before the end of the year. But I think higher interest rates are to come. Okay, so what should people do? Well, that's a great question. I think there are a couple of things. Obviously, at this point in time, you want to take a look at, at your debt. Uh, obviously, if you are carrying debt, you want to make sure that you know you can you know afford higher interest rates or perhaps pay down that debt a little bit more aggressively. On the flip side, if you are someone that is investing in this market, higher interest rates will at some point mean higher rates on things such as bonds or GICs or some of the fixed income products that you may be investing in. So that's a bit of a positive. And if you're someone who invests in the stock market, there are actually investments like investing in bank stocks, for example, that actually do well when interest rates rise. So there are different ways to look at this from the positive side bit of a negative side, but I think you have to take a look at your finances in in general. I mean, basically, you know, we all have the advice that we have to review our portfolios every now and again. Do you think that basically most people have to do it just because of the change in the environment? Absolutely. You know, I think the days of the buy and hold are are pretty much done. You know, back in the 1980s, you could own an investment. And if you held it for 10, 15, 20 years, there's a good chance if it's a good quality investment, you would have made money. But today with the market as volatile as it is, changing of interest rates, changing of uh, the political environment, the geopolitics, you know, whether it's things coming out of Washington or North Korea, investments are changing. Uh, The stock market is going up and down a lot more frequently. So I think you need to be on 
top of your investments a, a lot more frequently. And what I tell my clients is that I look at their portfolio at a minimum of every six to eight weeks from my largest client all the way down to my smallest client because I believe you as an investor want to know your investment advisor is watching. And that's something that we do at the Allen Small Financial Group. Okay. Um, but what do you say to people? A lot of people are very worried about investing in the market, especially when it is volatile. But on the other hand, the so-called safe things are basically paying you no money. So uh, I know that a lot of older people have a fear of being in the market. Yeah, that's been, uh, I guess, the, the biggest dilemma because interest rates have been so low for so long that it has forced many seniors and those that may not normally be in the market to move into the market. Because interest rates on GICs and bonds, you're looking at maybe 1%, 2% for, for quite a while now. And that just doesn't cut it for most people that are on fixed expenses, et cetera. And everything we know around us is going up in cost, yeah. 2%, roughly 2 2.5%. So unless you are making 2 2.5% after tax on your investments, you're just not keeping up with the standard of living. So a lot of individuals have looked at conservative investments that are in the stock market, such as, as I mentioned earlier, I've seen a lot of Zoomers and, and, and retirees move into things such as bank stocks or utility stocks or even telecommunications, which pay, which pay great dividends and tend to be less volatile as well. Um, again, um, for people who are nervous about making those investments, a lot of people say, well, you know what? If I have a loss, I don't have time to recover from it. And again, that's a very uh, a question I hear quite often with my, especially clients that are approaching retirement or in retirement. And what I tell them is that unless you need your money all at once, so let's say you're 60 years of age and you're about to retire, unless you're going to pull out all your money at once, you're probably going to be invested for many years to come. Average life expectancy is somewhere between 80 and 85 years of age. So you still have you know, possibly 20 years, 25 years, or even more in retirement that you're going to need this money to last for. And so if you are unfortunate enough to be in an investment that does go down initially, not to worry because you still have a long-term time horizon. And so I think that's the biggest thing I hear from retirees and, and Zoomers is that, you know, I don't have the long time horizon. Well, you actually do. And even if you are retiring very soon, you're still going to be investing for, for quite some time, perhaps even as much as a third of your life still to come. So I think you want to keep that in mind and not that that worry you as much. Um, you know, I'm almost thinking that when it comes to that, it's almost um – more of a, a psychological barrier. It's just people are nervous about it. Exactly. And you know, emotion plays such a huge part in investing. You know, you can tell someone the mathematics behind an investment, how much they look to make over the years, and we can pull out charts. But at the end of the day, the investor has to be comfortable with it. And I can't tell you how many times I've spoken to investors and it just wasn't comfortable for them. And we ended up not going ahead with that investment. Okay, I'm going to give the numbers out again. I'm here with Alan Small, who is a financial advisor, and we're talking about what to do in light of a big change. Interest rates, which have been so low for so long, have started to go up. And what does that mean for you? Now, the, the, the bottom line on this is that it's individual. It depends on your own situation. So he's here today and he can take your calls and answer your questions on that because, again, it depends on where you are at. The numbers to call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Forty and uh, 
Alan, um, okay, people are nervous, but even with interest rates going up a little bit, can they make a sufficient return with with the other options? Uh, yes, absolutely. You know, and I think right now, even with interest rates rising, and the and what that means, you know, interest rates affect many things, such as currency. You know, our dollar has been rising significantly since May as well. As interest rates have have gone higher, our dollar has appreciated. At one point, it was up. 12-13% from where it was trading back at the beginning of May and that affects things as well our economy and for those that like to go down shopping in Buffalo over the weekend that may help them but overall a stronger dollar is not necessarily that great for our economy so interest rates definitely have a, a, a significant impact on our dollar but Overall, I think even in a rising interest rate environment, you can make money. As I mentioned earlier, there are investments that tend to do well and outperform. And those are the same investments that I would consider more conservative, like bank stocks, like insurance stocks and things of that nature. So when you look at the stock market and you look at something that you may want to dip your toe in as a maybe a first-time investor, you know those tend to be the areas that people feel most comfortable with. Those are the largest companies in our country. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you would stick to those. Uh, would you tell people that that really stick to uh, stocks that pay dividends? Absolutely. You know, you know, a good recipe for success is always buying something that you're comfortable with, that you know, but also that you get paid something while you wait. And, and so there are many times where you buy an investment and that investment doesn't really rise right away. Well, if you own something that pays you a dividend out of the profits of the company, let's say, you know, a couple of bank stocks today will pay you over 4%, some will pay you just under 4%, but you're still making 4% just for owning the shares, whether they go up or down. Compare that to what a GIC is paying, let's say somewhere around 2% today, that's double what a GIC is paying. And as we know, from a tax perspective, dividends are taxed a lot better than interest income. So there are a lot of things you could do, even in a rising interest rate environment, to get a good dividend, to buy a good quality investment, and to, to own it and, and watch it go higher. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting that that dividend can make up for the you know, uh, if we can make up for it if the price of the stock falls. It's a great cushion. And, yeah. and you know, you, you think that if you buy shares of, let's say, CIBC, that is paying possibly just under 5% right now, the first 5%. So if your CIBC stock were to fall 5%, you make 5% on the dividend, there you are. You know, there's that cushion and you're, you're at the break-even mark. So I think, you know, dividend-paying investments is a great way to go. We know that more than 50% of an investor's returns come from dividends themselves alone. So dividends is a great recipe for success, and I definitely recommend it for investors. Okay. Uh, let's take a call from Kim in Scarborough. Hi, Kim. Hi. You're Hi. on the... Go ahead. My my question is, um, are you concerned about us going into a recession with these interest rates going up? That's a great question, Kim. Uh, not really, because I believe the Bank of Canada, if they do continue to raise rates, they will raise it at a very slow rate. And I, I think Mr. Polaz, who is the, the governor of the Bank of Canada... I believe he is smart enough to know that he just can't raise interest rates, you know, 75 basis points or even a full point at a time. They tend to move in quarter point increments. And so when we see interest rates rising, they tend to happen very slowly. 
Uh, Mr. Polas knows that there are a lot of Canadians out there that are carrying a lot of debt. Statistics tell us that for every dollar we're making, we're carrying about $1.68 of debt. So, And that's actually higher than it was in the U.S. when the U.S. had their issues back in 2008. So I think the Bank of Canada knows this. So if they are going to continue to raise rates, they will do it at a very slow pace. And that should prevent us from going into some sort of a, a big recession. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. I am here with financial advisor Alan Small. We're talking about what to do in the changing economic uh, environment, notably interest rates starting to go up. Let's go to the phones, and we've got Richard in Toronto. Hi, Richard. Oh, hi. Good afternoon. Go ahead. Uh, thank you very much, Alan, for your helpful advice. Uh, I have a, a portfolio with Investors Group, uh, and it's been running fairly well over the years. Um, I built up quite a substantial RRSP, and I took out a spousal RSP for my wife. Uh, many years ago to, you know, to alleviate tax implications a little bit because of the balance. Uh, I just wondered, there's two schools of thought, aren't there, uh, whether anyone should tamper with the RSP as in take out any funds for any purposes before age 65, or should we leave it alone? Is that the, the rule of thumb? Well, that's a great question, and I think it really depends on, on the individual themselves. Um, 65, I know a lot of people look at that age as 65 as the retirement age, but really you don't have to take out any money from the RSP until you're 71 and actually start receiving that money when you're 72. So it really will depend on, on your situation. Are you still working? Do you have an income? Or do you, you know, will you rely on the RSPs to provide you that income uh, in retirement? And I think that's the way I would look at it. Obviously, when you pull money from the RSPs, uh, you will pay tax. If it's in your wife's name, obviously, it will be taxed in her hands. If it's in your name, it will be taxed in yours. So it will really depend on where you're at with respect to your income. If you pull money out of your RSP, that will just add to the income that, if you are working currently, it will just bring that up perhaps to another tax uh, level. So you really have to be mindful of that. Well, thank you very much, Alan. Very helpful. My pleasure. Right. Okay. Um, So... You could conceivably, if, if you're not working anymore, you could take money out of your RSP at a level where it wouldn't be taxed. Yeah, you know, in, a lot of people think that they have to wait until their, their 60s. You know, if you are fortunate enough to be able to retire earlier and start to draw on that money earlier, then you can do so. And uh, obviously, whatever t- whenever you pull money out of the RSP, you will be taxed. So that will count as income in the year you pull it out. So you really have to, you know, sp- I would recommend speaking to your accountant or your tax specialist to see if it makes sense. Sometimes it does make sense to pull money out earlier, or sometimes it makes more sense to wait uh, for a later date. So it really just depends on the person. I know a lot of people, a lot of people in our audience have the opposite problem, and, and that is, that you have to start pulling money out of your RSP at the age of 71. And I I actually know people, some who are still working at that age or working part-time, and they don't really need the money and they don't want to take it out because they're going to need it if they live a long time. Yeah, and that's why our government recently had lowered the, the limits or the minimum amount that you need to pull out. Uh, the Liberal government reduced that amount. Actually, I believe it might have been the Conservatives, actually. It was the Conservatives. The Conservatives yeah. reduced that amount down into the 5% range. And so 
that has been a bit of a benefit for those that don't need the money, even when they are 71, that they don't have to pull out as much. Having said that, uh, there are other avenues that you could use. You know, if you need to pull out money out, well, you have to at 72, you could then roll it into a tax-free savings account. You could roll it into another investment account to therefore earn more income or earn another you know, a rate on top of the rate that you already earn. If you don't need the money, then you can always reinvest it. So I have a, a number of clients that do that as well. Yeah, and you mentioned the tax-free savings account. And, uh, you know, I've heard advice, which sounds very sound. Uh, you know, people, a lot of people concentrate on the RSP. And, and for a lot of people, it's actually hard to get together uh, the money for the RSP, even though you get the tax savings. But if you put your money in the tax-free savings account, that's that's after-tax money so that in retirement you have one stream that you won't be taxed on and one stream that you will be taxed on. Exactly. And the tax-free savings account, I think now that the, the, the amounts have gone up, so the lifetime amount now is up to 52000 per person. Uh, if you're an adult and, and, and in the program started in 2009, I believe, we're up to 52000 per person. So if you are married, yourself and your spouse, you'd be able to invest over $100,000, $104,000 and not have to pay any taxes on any of those gains. And so a very powerful tool to use for, for, for savings, whether it be for retirement, save to buy a house, or savings just in general for your future. And so I think tax-free savings accounts definitely become have become a viable option for Canadian investors. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, I've talked to some younger people who have told me that they will put money in their tax-free savings account before the RSP. I, I don't really understand the rationale for that, though. Well, I think if you don't need the tax deduction, then it can make sense to open up a tax-free savings account. A lot of young people need access to their funds. They want to be able to invest, but then pull that money out if they need to, to buy a home or, 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 or something along those lines. When you put money into the RSP, it's more long-term thinking. You're putting it for, towards your retirement. Whereas a tax-free savings account, I tend to look at it as more like a slush fund. It could stay in there. If you need it, you can access it tax-free, but if you don't need it, it grows tax-sheltered. So a lot more flexibility. Now, you don't get a tax break when you invest in a tax-free savings account, so that is a key difference. But if you're a young person and you know perhaps you don't make a lot of money right now and you have some money to invest, I definitely would point you in the direction of a tax-free savings account. Okay, that's cool. That's interesting. Um, let's turn to the whole question of a financial advisor. How do you choose one and, and how do you know if they're doing a good job for you? And I think that's probably the number one question investors or, or individuals uh, are asking. You know, how do you know when you have a good investment advisor? And, you know, I think the bottom line is you, 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 when you meet them, I think people get a sense right away if this is someone you could trust, if they're knowledgeable. What is their investment philosophy? You know, sometimes investors and their investment advisor, their philosophies don't match. So I think it's a good idea to ask, you know, what do you, you know, what is your investment philosophy? How did you fare or what did you do uh, the last time times were difficult? We have to go back probably to 2008 to ask that question. But in 2008, when you were managing money, what did you do? How did you protect your client's wealth? Did you just do nothing and pray? Or did you have a strategy in mind? Did you, you know, and what was that strategy? So I think there are a lot of things you could do to ask 
that investment advisor who's sitting across from you and, and get a feel for, you know, who that person is and, and if it's a good fit for you. Mm-hmm. And uh, do most people, is it is it word of mouth? How do they even get to the person that they are interviewing? And you really should interview them. Exactly. And, and I think today a lot of it is word of mouth, uh, referrals, you know, people know people, etc. You know, some people might be listening to me on the radio mm-hmm. now. There you go. Uh, but I think today a lot of it comes from, you know, talking to people, finding out who someone is using, finding out information about that person. A lot of what I do, for example, is online. You can see my philosophy. You can see how I manage money. You can see you know, my client's service agreement and things along uh, of that nature. So I think it's very easy now to, to find different investment advisors. There are a lot of them out there. A lot of them have different credentials. A lot of them can't sell all products. Some of them can only sell a few products. So you really want to get to know that person and see if they're right for you. And, and you want to know how they're paid. Absolutely. Fees is a huge part. How are they paid? Are they a fee for service? Do they charge straight commissions? And what is that fee? The average fee for for service or commissions usually runs 1% to 2% in that range. Some actually are even higher than that. You know, what do they charge for their services and is it reasonable for the services they provide? And and also you want to know, uh, you know, what kind of commissions they're making on the products they sell. Absolutely. You know, and there's a lot of talk about fees now and, and with the you know, Securities Commission and wanting to talk about embedded commissions and things like that, you know, commissions that are paid to advisors through mutual fund companies. And that's being discussed as we speak. So I think it's really good. I think the industry right now has, has come a long way in uh, showing individual investors through statements exactly what they're paying on an annual basis. That is now required by law from all investment advisors. And I think that's really good for investors because they'll see exactly what they're paying their advisor. Okay. Uh, we have time for one more quick call. We've got Vicki in Toronto. Hi, Vicki. Hi. How are you? Fine. Good. I have a question regarding, uh, uh, I want to know the difference between a financial advisor and an advisor at the bank. Are they paid the same? Do they have the same uh, products they can uh, deal with? Um, just the difference I wanted to know. Okay, we're going to let you go and let Alan answer that. Thank you. And, and, and I, th- I know that at times the, the, the title makes uh, things a little confusing, investment advisor, financial advisor. Some people even say stockbroker. Uh, I think it really depends where at the bank you're, you're going to. Are you going to the wealth management side or are you going at the branch level? At the branch level, they usually don't have as many, uh, I guess, investments in their bag to offer you as you may see at a more of a wealth management level or the full-serve brokerage side of things. It also depends on, I guess, the size of portfolio you're dealing with. When you go into a bank branch, if your portfolio tends to be a little larger, they tend to refer you, at least the people at the branch level, tend to refer you up the ladder into the wealth management area. So there are definite differences between someone you see at the branch level, someone who's independent like myself, and someone who, I guess, is in wealth management at the bank level. Different products, different levels, and different investment advisors deal with different types of clients. And and in 30 seconds, there are also different qualifications. Absolutely. You know, a lot of us are called investment advisors, but we definitely do different things. And as I said, not everybody can sell all products. Okay. Uh, that's all the time we have. Alan Small, thank you so much for that. Thanks for having me. Okay. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. 
Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.